everybody. It's so good to have you here at Compassion today. Man, we're glad you're here. We hope you're going to be blessed. I know you've been blessed by the service so far. And friends, the best is yet to come. I'm really excited about our communicator today. His name is Jay Jones. And you know, Jay is just an old samurai here on our staff. He's been around the ministry for 29 years. He loves the Lord. He's been strong in season and out. Uh, he and his wife, Kathy, have been through all kind of all the ups and downs that marriage and life can offer and ministry can offer. And man, they've prevailed. They've been strong. They've been a blessing to our church. So man, thankful that Jay is with us today. Thankful you're here. Open your Bible to Romans chapter 12. Let's give Jay a warm, compassionate Christian welcome as he comes. Well, hey, everybody. It is great to be here with you today. Man, I'm excited to be here with you, and I want to send out my greetings to all of our campuses, as well as anybody who might be joining us online as well. Uh, it's just good to be here with y'all. You know, I love movies, and uh, if you talk to anybody in my family, they'll tell you I love movies, love going to movies, love watching movies and DVDs at home, you know. I just love movies, and like most guys, I especially love the movies, you know, that are kind of the guy type of movies, you know, loud explosions, you know, big noises, you know, all that kind of stuff. And if it's a sci-fi movie, man, all the better. I mean, it doesn't get much better than that in my book, but the truth is that I actually love all kinds of movies. It doesn't have to be just your typical guy movie. It could be a comedy or a musical, you know, The uh, Greatest Showman that just came out. Man, I love that movie, a drama. I just enjoy all different kinds of movies, but there's no doubt that there's one kind of movie that I enjoy the most, and it's a movie that has a particular type of storyline, and it's that storyline that where we find out that someone, well, there's, they end up being something special, or there's something just ends up being amazing about them. You know, we see this kind of story in superhero movies all the time. You know, somebody gets falls into a vat of something, or, you know, you know, get zapped with some kind of laser, and all of a sudden they get superpowers and become amazing. You know, like Peter Parker, you know, the spectacular Spider-Man gets bit by a radioactive spider. Before that, he's just a high school kid, just trying to get by, trying to make his way, you know, getting picked on at school, and all of a sudden, he's bit by a spider, gets superpowers, starts swinging through the city and saving the world. You know, I just love watching movies with that kind of transformation story to it. And it's not just about superpowers, something like a superhero. It could be just somebody that realizes or accepts something special or significant about themselves. You remember Aragorn in the movie The Lord of the Rings? Aragorn's a ranger at the beginning of the movie, and he's actually a king. And we find out later that he's a king. He's got the blood of a king. He's just never been willing to accept his role as a king. But through the series of movies, we see it unfold. He begins to become more and more king-like, begins to take on more and more of those responsibilities. And in the end, leads as a king and leads Middle-earth to this amazing victory. Now, it's not just guy movies either, ladies. You have plenty of movies like these as well. Uh, remember the movie Princess Diaries? Uh, yeah, I enjoyed that movie too. Uh, I had a great time watching it with my wife. You know, Mia is a high school girl, just kind of trying to, kind of a high, new nerdy girl and trying to get by in life. And all of a sudden her grandmother shows up and reveals to her that in reality, she's a princess. And we see this transformation into this princess take place throughout the movie. Or, or Vivian in the movie Pretty Woman, who ends up going through her own transformation and becoming a high-class lady at the end of it. Now, why wouldn't we like those kinds of stories? I mean, all of us want to be transformed, to experience something that makes our life change or come into focus in an amazing way that just changes things for us forever. And I think that's exactly why Romans chapter 12 verses 1 to 2 
is one of the most memorized and taught on and preached on passages in the Bible. And those two verses in Romans 12, they contain one of the greatest challenges and the grandest promises that we find in Scripture. It's a promise of transformation. So open your Bibles to Romans 12 if you aren't already doing that. We're going to be camping out there today. And if you don't have a Bible, you can grab one in the, the seats around you and find one someplace. If you don't own a Bible at all, please stop by Connecting Point after the service is over. We want to make sure that you have your own Bible. Now, Romans chapter 12, verses 1 to 2, lays out this challenge for us. It says, Therefore, I urge you, brothers, in view of God's mercy, to offer your bodies as living sacrifices, holy and pleasing to God. This is your spiritual act of worship. Do not conform any longer to the pattern of this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. Then you'll be able to test and approve what God's will is, his good and his pleasing and his perfect will. Man, that's such a great challenge. That's such an amazing promise within those couple of verses. Paul starts off by laying out the challenge. As a matter of fact, he starts out by simply acknowledging that we've already, or at least his readers, have already accepted the first challenge, and that is they've given their spirit to God. He says, therefore, I urge you, brothers, in view of God's mercy. He's just simply acknowledging these are already Christians that he's writing to. They've already received the mercy of God. He's calling them brothers. They've accepted this challenge. But he says there's more to it than that. It's not just giving your life to Christ that encompasses the whole challenge that God presents to us. He says there's another step, and that other step is to offer your bodies then as a living sacrifice. To literally offer your flesh and blood, your daily life, the day in and day out, comings and goings, everything about your day uh, is wrapped up in your flesh and blood and your daily life and and Paul says we need to offer that to God as well, our spirits and our bodies. But that's not all that God wants. He continues on in verse 2 to say that we need to renew our minds as well. That God wants all three of these different aspects. And so his, simple, his, his uh, request is very simple, it's very clear, and frankly it's the most infinitely challenging request in the universe. And that is that God wants all of us. Every piece, every part of who we are, our spirits, our flesh, and our minds. And a matter of fact, those three things are very significant in the scriptures because as you look through the scriptures, the scriptures identify those three aspects of a person as what makes up being a human being. Your spirit, your flesh, and your mind all coming together. So God's asking for it all. But with that challenge comes an amazing promise. We can be transformed. And we can not only know God's will, but Paul says we can test and approve God's will. Now, that's not going out and putting God to the test type of thing. Testing and approving literally uh, means simply to, to give it a try, to live it out in your life, that you can actually live out God's will for us, live out the will of our Creator. But unlike the movies, it's not a simple process. It's not as easy as just getting bit by a radioactive spider or, or having your grandmother show up and tell you that you're a princess. It goes far deeper and is far more involved in that. And we've got to begin to understand the whys and the hows of what it means to sacrifice and what it means to be transformed. And if we get that thing wrong, if we get those things wrong, then life and faith and all of our relationships, which are so deeply tied to both of those things are misdirected and they become out of focus. In short, 
we get it wrong. And I believe that many of us do get it wrong because we think it's an internal journey. You know, it's my personal relationship with God. It's what's going on in my spirit or in my mind or in my life. And because of that, we begin to approach it really as the world approaches it, as an, as an internal journey. But the world actually calls this journey self-actualization. Now, self-actualization is a big, fancy word. So let me define what it means to actually be self-actualized. Be self-actualized is the achievement of one's full potential through creativity, independence, spontaneity, and a grasp of the real world. The process of establishing oneself as a whole person, able to develop one's abilities, and to understand oneself. Now, that's actually not a bad statement about some of the things that should be happening to us while we're a Christian, when we pledge our lives to Christ and as we begin to and continue to grow in Christ, I mean, how can we possibly understand ourselves, become a whole person, or reach our fullest potential apart from our Creator? But we get it wrong in that we think it's an internal process only. It's my personal relationship with God. So we focus on personal prayer and quiet times and long walks in the woods alone and contemplating who I am and, and what I want to be and who God thinks I am and what he wants me to be. And while all those things are actually an important part of the process, that's where the world ends, on their journey of personal self-discovery. But that is not where God ends, which is exactly why verse 2 is not where Paul ends. See, so many of us memorize those first two verses. So often we teach on those first two verses, but we don't understand that's not the end of Paul's teaching on the subject. Now, hopefully you understand that Paul didn't put chapters and verses in the Bible. He didn't put those little subtopic headings in your Bible. We added those later to help us to study the Bible. There's nothing wrong with them. They're very handy. They're very helpful. As we study the scriptures, they were great. Unfortunately, sometimes they can appear to separate one thought into two. And in this case, some of your translations out there actually put a separate heading in your Bible between verses 2 and 3. And so we very naturally think that Paul is shifting to a new thought as he moves on to verse 3. But if you look at the original text, he's not. Frankly, if Paul was speaking this message to us out loud today... If he was standing up here and just speaking this message to us, he'd barely take a breath between verses 2 and 3. And so Paul says in that that this, and what he's going to continue on to teach us, is that this is anything but a personal journey. It's not even an option for us to make this a personal journey. And so Paul makes it very clear when he starts in verse 3. He makes it very clear with a seemingly, seemingly innocuous, you know, just a simple statement, but it's actually a very powerful statement that contains two key concepts that helps us to understand this. Verse 12, excuse me, chapter 12, verse 3, starts off by simply saying, For by the grace given me, I say to every one of you. And that doesn't sound like, it sounds like a nice introduction statement, but it's very significant. First of all, he uses the word for. Now, for is not a big word in our language, but again, if you look in the original text, you understand that it's a very important word. It's Paul's way of communicating that, look, what I'm about to tell you ties directly into what I just said. But he doesn't end there. He continues on and he says something else critical. For by the grace given me. Again, it just sounds like Paul's being pleasant as he begins to introduce a, a new idea. But it's anything but. As a matter of fact, he's being very strong and stern in that statement. Because the grace given Paul 
is the grace that made him an apostle of Jesus Christ. He's speaking to his authority. He's relying upon his authority as an apostle of Jesus Christ in communicating the message that's to come. He's tagging in that directly and that powerfully. That grace also authorizes him to communicate the word of God to all of us. So Paul is simply saying, look, what I'm about to tell you, it ties directly into what we just talked about. And, and by the way, this isn't just some good advice. It's not just a, a little, you know, tidbit for you to chew on a little bit. This is an authorized message from God. What Paul is doing in that simple sentence is he's tying the spiritual dedication that we're called to have to the spiritual service of our life, both to ourselves and with others. Which means we need to understand the whole picture. Because frankly, if we can't get verses 3 to 8 right, we simply end up like a monk on a mountaintop who feels very, very close to God, but it's really not making much of a difference to either them or certainly not to the people around them. So if we truly want to dedicate our spirit and our flesh and our mind to God, Paul says it all starts with the proper attitude. Now, attitude's all about how we think or feel about ourselves or, or how we think and feel about someone or, or something else. And Paul tells us exactly what that attitude should be in verse 3. Again, he starts off, by four, by the grace given me, I say to every one of you, do not think of yourselves more highly than you ought, but rather think of yourself with sober judgment in accordance with the measure of faith that God has given you. Now, the proper attitude for any Christian is that of humility. And the lack of that foundational virtue causes many of us to stumble. I mean, think about it. If we're all striving to be like Jesus, then we must have Jesus' foundational virtues, right? And humility is one of his core virtues. Philippians chapter 2 tells us that in verses 5 to 8. It says, your attitude should be the same as that of Christ Jesus, who being in the very nature of God, did not consider equality with God something to be grasped, but made himself nothing, taking the very nature of a servant, being made in human likeness, and being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself and became obedient to death, even death on the cross. See, folks, no matter how well-grounded we may be in God's word, or how theologically sound we are, or how vigorously we may seek to serve God, our lives cannot and will not grow or be spiritually productive until we first humble ourselves as Jesus did. You know, when I was in Bible college, there was a group of guys, and you know, in, in smaller colleges like that, you start off in a major and you begin to study together, you have classes together, and if you're in the same major and you kind of have the same focus, you end up having a lot of classes together, and that's exactly what happened to us. There's a dozen of us or so that really had a lot of classes. We spent a lot of time together and we got to know each other pretty well. And what I remember most vividly about those years were two different guys that went through that program with me. Uh, one guy was, uh, well, frankly, he was just extremely gifted. He was just an extremely gifted uh, for ministry and for preaching and for pastoring. Unfortunately, he knew it. He, he knew that he knew it. I mean, he was gifted academically. The honest truth is he was the best preacher among us, man. He preached and all the rest of us would really pay attention and try to figure out what we needed to do better. But he knew it. And he often let us all know that he knew it. And sometimes subtle and sometimes not so subtle ways. And frankly, as you might imagine, he wasn't necessarily the most popular guy in class. As a matter of fact, we used to critique each other as we were 
kind of learning how to communicate and we'd fill out little forms and so you'd go through them afterwards and try to figure out what you needed to learn and boy, we'd always kind of cringe when we got to his because we knew it was going to be ruthless. He made it very clear that you did not live up to his standards and he did that pretty consistently. Now there was another guy in our class though. Another guy's name was Gary. And Gary was a great guy, but honestly, he was a mess. He was just a mess. Uh, Gary had been a Christian about five minutes before he went to Bible college. He literally became a Christian, two weeks later signed up for Bible college, and two weeks later moved into the dorms. You know what I mean? It was just that fast for him. He became a Christian, and he instantly felt the call to be a pastor, and he was going to go after it. But, well, he was a mess. <laughs> He struggled academically. He struggled as a preacher. Man, I remember one time Gary was up preaching, and he's front of the class, man, and he's going after it, and he's preaching his heart out, and he's getting passionate and all fired up, and all of a sudden he let a cuss word fly out. <laughs> now, folks, I'm going to give you a tip about preaching. That's probably not the best choice to make, right? But he was on fire, and, uh, and he went after it. Um, but uh, Gary was... He was a great guy. I mean, that's the truth. He struggled with pretty much everything, but he really believed that God had called him to be a pastor, and he persevered, and he hung in there, and everybody just loved him. He encouraged people. He was honest with us about his struggles and the challenges that he was having. He often said that he knew that only God was going to be able to make something of his self-proclaimed mess. And it taught me a great lesson. And one lesson I learned around time of graduation, the other lesson I didn't learn until many years later. But the uh, truth is, and, and I'm, I'm just ashamed to tell you this, but I wanted to be like the first guy. I wanted to be smart and talented and be able to give these amazing messages. And, you know, I wanted angels to show up to hear what I had to say, you know. I just wanted that. This guy got hired about six months before he graduated, you know, as a senior pastor of a church. And, you know, man, we wanted that. We just, we wanted those things. But he lacked the core virtue of our Savior. And so he began his senior ministry about six months before he graduated. And by six months after he graduated, his ministry came to a screeching permanent end as he had a massive moral failure that was directly tied to the lack of that virtue in his life. And I thought about that and I thought about what led him to that dark place and I thought about the fact that I wanted to have be so much like that in my own life. But it really wasn't until years later that I fully learned that lesson. It was about 10 years later. I was out at the college, I, I believe for an alumni function, and uh, ran into Gary. You know, ran into Gary, just, hey, bud, how you doing, man? It's great to see you. It's just good. How's life treating you? And, and what I found out was our academically struggling and sermon cussing, humble man, had become a man that God was using in amazing and mighty ways. After Gary graduated, he had served in a couple different roles, kind of associate type roles, and eventually had become a senior pastor of a little church in California of about 100 or so people. And... Uh, and he had, had continued to lead that for a number of years. And the thing was, as I talked to him, I found out that his church of a couple hundred people, 100, 100, 200 people, had actually turned into a church of a couple thousand people. And it wasn't the fact that he had a big church that impressed me. It was just the fact that God was using this humble man 
to bring thousands of people to Christ, to disciple thousands of people, to make this massive impact upon them. And the amazing thing is, Gary was still that same humble, kind of a mess guy. He laughed. He was laughing with me. I remember to this day and just kind of laughing about how he couldn't believe what God had done. He couldn't believe that God was using him in this way. He just thought it was just unbelievable that he would have the privilege to do that. But it shouldn't have amazed him or anybody else for that matter. He's just living his life like Jesus did, setting himself aside so that God could use him. And that attitude is what made the difference between those two men. And some people might say attitude is everything. Paul doesn't. Paul says we need that proper attitude towards ourselves and others, but we also need a proper relationship. A relationship is all about how we see ourselves and how we see the connection that we have to others. In Romans chapter 12, 4 to 5 explains what this is supposed to look like. It says, just as each of us has one body with many members, and these members do not all have the same function, so in Christ we who are many form one body, and each member belongs to all the other. Now what Paul's talking about is something, frankly, that America's really struggling with these days, that is unity and diversity. I mean, he says there's only one body. There's the unity that he's talking about. He continues to say there are many members. All those members, they don't have the same function. There's diversity in the mix. It's kind of like a football team, right? A football team has 40 or 50 people on it. But if they all wanted to play quarterback, if they're all competing for that one position, well, there certainly wouldn't be any unity as they were stepping on each other and pushing each other out of the way kind of to get to that role. And there certainly would be no effectiveness as a team because there would not be anybody to even catch the ball, much less block and run and the other things that are necessary to make a football team successful. See, true unity and effectiveness arises when we embrace diversity, not reject it because others are different or have different passions or abilities or think differently than ourselves. And when a team is unified, it becomes powerful. It becomes a force of nature that can move all the roadblocks. It becomes greater than any single person could hope to be. And it brings glory then to the one who leads that team. And when we as Christians become unified, when we look past the things that used to divide us, that, that Christ has destroyed, when we work together to spread the word, we reflect the Lord has been, who has blessed us. And we become a world-changing force of nature, folks that brings glory to the one who leads us. I mean, just think about people, the people that Paul was writing to in this letter. He's writing to Roman citizens. Now at that time, Roman citizens thought they were better and stronger and more civilized than anybody else in the world. And yet we see these same Roman citizens ending up uniting with other diverse people within their city and then ending up uniting with other churches in the region and a great diversity of people within and throughout the region. They all were uniting around the gospel and that very small following created a movement that swept the world and today has captured the hearts of over 2 billion followers. Folks, that's a powerful force. And the most amazing part of it all is that unity doesn't just change the world. It changes us as well. Look at what Paul writes to the church in Ephesus. Now, in this section on Ephesians, Paul's basically communicating a very similar message to what he writes to the church in Rome and in what we're looking at today. In Ephesians chapter 4, verses 3 to 6, 
He says, make every effort to keep the unity of the spirit through the bond of peace. There is one body and one spirit, just as you were called to one hope when you were called. One Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all who is over all and through all and in all. Now, there is probably not a more unifying statement or a unity statement within all of Scripture than what Paul writes to the church in Ephesus there. And so he's making it very clear, this very clear call to unity. But he continues on in the next few verses to say that we also then need to do our part within that unity. And then he ends up telling us what ends up happening as a result. When we serve together, uh, we do that until we all reach unity in the faith and the knowledge of the Son of God. That's what happens corporately. We all end up reaching unity in the faith and our knowledge in the Son of God grows together. But then he shifts over to our benefit and we become mature, attaining to the whole measure of the fullness of Christ. Folks, corporate unity and personal growth are absolutely tied together. One goes hand in hand with the other. It's not just about being a blessing to others. We understand Paul is talking about transformation, how we go about being changed into the image of Christ. It takes place by serving others, and then our transformation happens at the same time. And that right attitude, that attitude of humility, and understanding that in Christ we are all joined together in the midst of our differences, when we can have that proper relationship that we, where we see that we're actually deeply interconnected and deeply in need of the differences in each other, then we can make an impact together, a kingdom impact together, which also then results in our personal transformation. Now, once we understand that, then we're ready to live a life of the proper service. Now, Paul continues here by challenging us to use our spiritual gift, to put them into play, to not only be united, but to serve as God has gifted us. Look at Romans 12, verses 6 to 8. We have different gifts according to the grace given us. If a man's gift is prophesying, let him use it in proportion to his faith. If it's serving, let him serve. If it's teaching, let him teach. If it's encouraging, let him encourage. If it's contributing to the needs of others, let him give generously. If it's leadership, let him govern diligently. If it's showing mercy, let him do that cheerfully. Folks, no ability, spiritual or otherwise, is of any real value if it's not put to use. Yeah, I recently read about a, a farmer, some farmer up in, in a small prairie town in Canada. And somehow this farmer, I don't know how, but he has amassed a collection of very expensive and rare violins. And you can show up at his place and, and see these violins on display. Now, they're so rare and expensive that they're kept, you know, under glass. Um, but they're there and you can go and take a look at them. And I'm sure that they would all sound absolutely beautiful if they were played, but they're not. They're simply stored and protected and admired. And it's tragic that the same can be true about spiritual gifts. The spiritual gifts that so many Christians keep stored away instead of using them to serve the Lord who gave them those gifts in the first place. Now, if you don't know what I'm talking about when I'm saying spiritual gifts, let me just Take a, a real brief second here to explain what a spiritual gift is. Spiritual gifts are given to you by God the moment you accept Christ as your Lord and Savior. Your sins are taken away. That allows the Holy Spirit to come and to dwell within you. And when the Holy Spirit shows up, He brings a gift for you. And that gift is an ability that you're to use in God's service. 
Spiritual gifts are given to us because God has a plan for our lives to join in with others and to do something in this world that makes an impact, that makes a difference in the world. And there are many, many gifts out there. We don't get to pick which one we get. God distributes them as he sees fit. He distributes them to fill the needs of both this congregation and the community in which we're located in, uh, really to carry out his plans for the entire world. But I want you to think about it for a second. Think about how amazing it is that we get spiritual gifts. I think sometimes as Christians, we can sort of take it for granted. We've heard about them an awful lot throughout our lives and throughout our life in Christ. So it's easy to take them for granted. But think about how amazing this is. Folks, by the fact that we get a gift from God, it means that God is not inviting us to be spectators in the bleachers. God's given us special ability so we can actually be part of the team. So that we can get down and be on the field side by side, being a force for God in this world. Man, there's so much more we could talk about here. But in this passage that we look at in Romans, Paul's really talking about putting your spiritual gifts into place. So I want to wrap up our time here by just talking to you about some practical get, uh, tips concerning our giftedness. First of all, let me talk to you about some pitfalls to avoid. In other words, don't use your gifts for these things. First of all, don't use your gift for personal gain. All right, your gifts, these are gifts for personal gain, means for your personal satisfaction or for your personal uh, benefit rather than for the common good of the body of Christ. You know, I have a friend in Arizona and he has a spiritual gift of leadership. As a matter of fact, he's one of the top leaders in the state of Arizona. We were in a, a men's study together, and I was leading the study and talking with him. And, and he, I knew that he had recently turned down an offer for him to assume a leadership role within the church. And so I was just talking to him about that. You know, why why why'd you make that decision? And he said, you know, Jay, he goes, look, I, I just lead every day, day in and day out. I'm doing leadership, making decisions. I, want, I don't want to come to church and have to do more of that. You know, that's my time with God. Well, I really challenged him on that kind of thinking. I mean, he was certainly using his gift to better our community, but why would he not want, it, want to use that gift for the actual body of Christ, which is the hope of the world? So, folks, if it's your gift, then lead in the community. But make sure you're also leading in the church as well. Teach in the community, but teach in the church as well. Shepherd in the community but shepherd in the church as well. God gives us our gift to both serve inside and outside these walls. Don't neglect either. Also, don't use your gift for prominence. Prominence means acting like your gifts are more important or more special than somebody else's. Now, Paul makes it clear in his letter to the Corinthians that your gift is not more important than somebody else's. 1 Corinthians 12, 21 to 22 says, The eye cannot say to the hand, I don't need you. And the head cannot say to the feet, I don't need you. On the contrary, those parts of the body that seem weaker are actually indispensable. Folks, every part of the body of Christ is necessary for it to fully function. Also be careful about projection. A projection is when you expect other Christians to serve with the same gifts or intensity or effectiveness that you do. Now this one can be really tricky because when God gives you a gift, along with that gift comes a passion. You know, if, you're got the, if you have the gift for evangelism, you're passionate about evangelism. And you're naturally not going to understand why everybody else isn't passionate about evangelism. And obviously the Bible makes it very clear that we have different gifts. 
So let's thank God for that instead of feeling like everybody else has to be just like us. Because the truth is, if we all had the gift of evangelism, we would have lots of people come to Christ. They probably wouldn't stay in Christ because there'd be nobody to teach them. There'd be nobody to disciple them. There'd be nobody to care for them when they get sick. There'd be nobody to organize or lead all the things that need to take place in order to grow somebody in Christ and help them to stay solidly anchored in Christ. Evangelism is just one part of the process. So we thank the Lord that we have this unity and diversity and we see that when we see that every, that we see equal value in all of the gifts. So don't expect everybody to serve with the same gifts or intensity or passion that you do. Lastly, don't put down your gift. Don't suppress or hide or not develop your gift. And don't doubt the importance or the impact upon, of your gift upon the body. You know, I was talking with one of our ladies the other day, and she was lamenting her gift of hospitality. She liked the fact that her gift was just cooking and cleaning dishes. You know, she wanted something, I think, a little more exciting than that. And I tried to help her to see that her gift is so much more than that. The gift of hospitality is not just exercised within the kitchen, certainly not just around a kitchen sink. The gift of hospitality is actually what welcomes people into our church and helps them to feel comfortable and at ease in this place. And it can often be the most powerful gift in tearing down personal barriers between uh, somebody in our church or somebody in Christ. It's powerful, folks. In fact, a number of studies have actually shown that after a person first arrives at church, you know, for their very first visit, there's about 7 to 11 minutes after they step out of their car, and during that time, they're going to decide whether they're coming back for a second visit. The first 7 to 11 minutes. Now, what doesn't happen in 7 to 11 minutes after you step out of, the, out of your car? Especially in our parking lots, you know, that can get pretty big. <laughs> uh, you know, you don't hear the worship. You don't hear this great music that we all just got to enjoy. You, you don't hear the sermon. You're not hearing any of that stuff. You're primarily encountering the gift of hospitality. And it is that gift and whether that person felt warm and welcome in this place that will primarily determine whether they come back for a second visit. And I hope I helped her to understand the gift of hospitality, just like all the gifts, is just as important as any other gift. The point is that every gift matters. So Paul says in these verses, look, whatever your gift is, use it. Because they're all part of God's plan. And hiding or devaluing your gift hinders his plan for us. Now while there's pitfalls to avoid, let me just tell you a couple things that you can do to start using your gift today. To put it into play. First, so you start by discovering what your gift is. If you don't know what your spiritual gifts are, go through a process of discovering what that is. There's a really simple first step you can take. And that is to take a spiritual gifts test. Now, a lot of people have developed this over the years. They work pretty well, actually. And as a matter of fact, I put in your bulletin. It's up here on the screen. There it is. Uh, that is a link. This is actually a link to our men's ministry webpage. And on there, there's an electronic spiritual gifts test. You go in there, you click a few things and answer some questions. And in the end, it'll give you a pretty good idea of what your gifts are. So go through a process of trying to explore exactly what those gifts are. But that's just a starting point. That's only going to give you a pretty good idea idea of how God has given you. You have to take the next step, which is to put it into practice. Take your gift and put it into practice. See, serving others is actually the best way to discover your gifts. Uh, it's actually easier to discover your gift through serving in a ministry than it is actually to discover what ministry you're supposed to be in by trying to figure out your gifts first. 
get in there and get in play. Think about it like joining a, a sports team. You know, uh, when you join a sports team, they're, uh, they're going to put you onto the field. They're going to put you into play. They're going to have you out trying out different positions. If it's baseball, meaning you might be a pitcher, you might be a catcher, you might be an outfielder. All of those different things take different skills and different abilities. And so, you, but you've got to get on the field. Let, try it out. Put yourself into play. So my encouragement to you is stop by Connecting Point after the service is over. If you're not serving someplace in the church, you need to put yourself into play. Stop by Connecting Point. People will walk you through there. They're not going to pressure you into things. Now, actually, I want to pause here for a second because here's the great fear. When I start talking about this, putting it into practice, signing up to serve someplace, everybody starts getting a little twitchy. You know, it's like, oh, boy, now, oh, yeah, look around. Well, look at the time. Uh, is this thing over yet? You know, kind of thing. Folks, we get nervous about that because we're afraid that wherever we're serving is going to be doing something we hate. It's going to be drudgery. It's going to just be exhausting. It's not going to be any fun. Folks, there are churches, and I know that some of you have come from these type of churches or other organizations that do the same thing where, man, you sign up to serve someplace, the only way to ever get out of it is to die, right? I mean, that's it. You're stuck there permanently. Folks, I want to tell you, this is not that place. Our staff, we train our staff, we, we talk about this all the time. Our desire is to help you to find the right place. So if you sign up to serve and it's not the right place, we know it's not good for you. We know it's not good for the people that you're serving. Ultimately, it's not even good for us as staff members to have you in the wrong place. So we want to help you to find the right place. So we'll, we'll do that, just like the baseball team. Sometimes you got to try out a few different positions before you find the right one. So don't be fearful about taking that step. And once you're there, once you're in the game, you're going to know that you've actually found the right gift or that you're exercising the right gift when you start to experience a couple things. It should feel comfortable to you. It's kind of like a good pair of shoes. You know, it just fits. It just feels comfortable. You begin to see fruit resulting. Positive things are happening as a result of, of your service and, and the time that you're investing. You also find a sense of personal fulfillment. You know, you might go home at the end of the day tired, but you feel really full inside. That fulfillment's taking place. And when you see those, hap those things happening, chances are you are right smack dab in the middle of your giftedness. Now folks, in the end, God's calling us to humble unity in the midst of our different gifts to accomplish His work in this world and also in your life. And that's the journey that Paul in invites us into in verses 1 and 2 to offer our body and our mind and our spirit to God, but to unite ourselves with others so that we can build God's kingdom and in the process be transformed into the image of Christ so that in the end we can live out God's will for our life. Think about that. To be able to live out our creator's will for us every day and bring him glory. Let's pray. Father God, I thank you that you have challenged us. This is an amazing challenge. It is a powerful challenge, one that seems too much to even be able to accomplish on our own. And thank you that we don't have to accomplish it on our own, that you have given us your spirit to guide and direct that process, to guide and direct the relationships we have and the attitudes we have and, and the service that we have. And so, God, we just thank you that you have given us, first of all, your spirit, second, that you... You may love us enough to challenge us in this way. 
and then walk beside us as we try to live it out. So God, we submit ourselves to you. We want to humble ourselves before you so that, God, you can do your work both in us and through us so that we can bring you glory. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen.